final episode of the very final season of Best Girl Grip. I am your host, Nicole Davis, and this has been the podcast that navigated the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I don't know if I have the words to accurately describe or summarise what doing this podcast has meant to me, and part of me just wants to skip forward to reintroducing a very special guest and getting down to the conversation without any frills as I normally do. That guest is Georgia Goggin, who was kind enough to appear as my first ever guest way back when I recorded in a pokey room at the BFI's offices, and I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, But when Georgia said yes, pretty enthusiastically as I remember, it gave me the confidence that I think I needed to continue asking other guests and just, you know, making, making the podcast happen. Back in 2019, when I released that episode, Georgia was a producer who had worked on a number of shorts, including the critically acclaimed We Love Moses, written and directed by Dion Edwards, and they were working towards their debut feature together, Pretty Red Dress. Part of the reason we wanted to get back together to record this final episode was because both of our careers have evolved quite significantly since then. Pretty Red Dress was released to great fanfare, having endured the rollercoaster of a pandemic. Georgia was nominated for Breakthrough Producer at the Biffers this year, and it was recently named a Best Film of 2023 by Vanity Fair. But beyond the success of that film, Georgia is now a writer and director in her own right, working on scripts and pilots, as well as having directed a short film called Bend, and so I was really interested to explore that transition or addition to her already many-stringed bow, and perhaps the idea of giving yourself permission to do more than one thing. We also spend some time talking about The Uncertain Kingdom, which is a fund that Georgia is an exec producer on. At the time of our first conversation, the fund was just opening for the first time, and oddly, that same fund is now back open for submissions that reflect on a different theme, so I will link to where you can apply for that in the show notes. But we talk about that experience and what it means to be a good exec producer. And then, to be honest with you, we just cover, you know, so much more um, than just careers and producing. We talk about failure, both creative and physical, making a good life for yourself while being creative and not being, you know, too tethered to outcomes or plans and just trying to be alive to what feels right as of the moment. Georgia, as ever, is very generous with her time, her wisdom, her honesty, her reflections, and then with her own questions that she poses to me about how the podcast got started and how it's evolved and what it's taught me. So you've got that to look forward to in the back half. I do feel weirdly emotional, uh, even though I've been preparing for this for well over a year. I guess I just want to say thank you to everyone that has ever listened along the way. Thank you to everyone that has ever taken the time to email me to tell me that they've enjoyed an episode or found some sense of community or strength or guidance from listening to it. And then thank you to every single one of my guests for indulging me, <laughs> for uh, for helping me get better as an interviewer and for not only saying yes because an interview podcast really doesn't hold up when you don't have a guest, but coming on the podcast with energy and engagement and a desire to speak about their experiences. You know, I I couldn't, I don't think I could have really um, predicted that. And it's been a privilege to hold that space for the past five years. And so without further ado, this is episode 138 and the final one of Best Girl Grip. I hope you enjoy. back to 
never said welcome back. Very exciting. I suppose to give people some context for listening, we first spoke in January 2019. You were my first ever guest on the podcast. So obviously I think today we'll be kind of doing a where we left off in terms of, you know, tracking back to that time in your life and, and where you are now, kind of four years later. But obviously, I, I, you know, huge thanks to you because I feel like as a founding guest on the podcast, you know, you were integral to it, it being a thing in the sense that I always say that I emailed 10 people that I was interested in speaking to, yourself included, and all of those 10 people people said yes and that was when I thought oh okay maybe this podcast has legs and it you know I, I can maybe just chat to these women and see what they have to say and I think if any one of you had said no or a few of you had said no I might have been the idea so very grateful for you for coming on when I didn't really know what I was doing oh that's so that's such a lovely thing I didn't know that that was the origin of it um I'm so honoured to have been your first guest. I was honoured at the time and I'm really honoured to come back because I feel like I kind of slightly cornered you into it at London Film Festival. We were, appropriately enough, we were in just about to watch a screening of She Said and you told me that you were you know, going to close close the podcast and bring it to an end and I jumped on you and was like, let me, <laughs> let me come back. <laughs> no, I so love that you did. And you were very gracious about it. But yeah, I just... I was curious to have that conversation with you because I felt like we have been intermittently in touch in that time and I know that both our careers had changed a bit in that time or quite a lot in that time and I thought it would be really interesting to have that conversation with you and as I proposed to you to yeah to try and slightly turn it around on you a little bit and ask you some questions because I can only imagine that your listeners are very curious about you because you've asked so many questions and have avoided them all the way through. Before we get to that, I do want to touch on The Uncertain Kingdom, I think, first, just because in listening back to the episode, that really felt like the kind of the project that was about to get underway. You know, you were kind of on it and you were in the process of, um, you know, the application window was open and so you were looking for these projects, but presumably didn't quite know what it would be or what it would like turn out to be. How do you kind of reflect on the anthology that you created and, you know, was it what you had intended? I feel really I feel really proud of it and I feel I, I feel very warmly about it as a as a representation of also a period of time and a lot of relationships. I mean, I, I remember saying on the podcast, you know, that I do this because of relationships. I really just I, I like it because of working with people. And that was such an express because it was 20 short films and 21 in the end because we made an extra one because of the pandemic. Yeah, it's just so, so many people. And, you know, some of those filmmakers we continue to work with in the in the new iteration of, of the Uncertain Kingdom. And so, yeah, I just feel I feel really proud of it. And I think in some respects, the project was so ambitious that it was kind of doomed to fail because we had, you know, very loftily wanted to make this snapshot of the UK as it was then, sort of end of a decade, 2019. And in only 20 films, there's, you can't do that. There's no way you can capture everything. And, you know, we received over a thousand applications. The topics that people wanted to talk about were so broad and, you know, there were so many of them and, you know, from all different parts of the country and different life experiences. And, you know, it's just not, 20 films just isn't enough film. There, there could never be enough films to do that. So in a way, you're doomed to fail. But I do still feel like we did manage to capture a moment. And then the fact that this thing, you know, we thought it was a we thought it was like a big time that end of the decade. 
and then the pandemic happened and just you know blew all of that out of the water and like nothing that we thought was true was true and or nothing that we thought was going to happen was going to happen and then we made this extra film that addressed the pandemic so the whole experience was so unexpected I just couldn't have predicted anything but I think I mean, we can talk about this because it affected, you know, every aspect of my life, as I imagine it did for everybody. But I think the whole experience of the pandemic was just such a profound humbling because it, for me, the big lesson of it was just like how truly little control that you have. And as a producer, that's very hard to accept and admit and get to grips with. And yeah, I just had no control over any of my projects. We had this big, you know, cinema release planned for the Uncertain Kingdom, which didn't happen because the cinemas were closed. And yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but my film Pretty Red Dress was shut down by the pandemic. So just everything that I thought that year, 2020, was going to be, it wasn't. Yeah, it was just very, it was very, very humbling, I'd say, was the overall, the overall lesson. Yeah, we'll definitely come back to the pandemic and kind of talk about how you learn to seed control as a producer. But I suppose as well, the thing that I'm interested in is obviously your role in the Uncertain Kingdom as an, as an exec producer as opposed to producer, which again is something I think there are blurred lines as to what those two roles are. And I'm wondering, you know, how you felt almost taking that kind of bird's eye view role as opposed to the kind of nitty gritty everyday role and, and how you kind of learn how to do that across 20 projects, which is, you know, such a massive slate of films to be across. Yeah, I really loved that aspect of it. I really, really loved the feeling that what little you know, wisdom and experience I'd gathered to that point doing my shorts and the handful of features that I'd done in different roles that I could bring to it. I, I really loved it, the feeling of being that I could be useful in a more passive way. You know, I wasn't in the trenches kind of fixing the problems day to day, but I was on the end of the phone. I was on email. Occasionally I could help with a problem. And I really loved that feeling. I loved it in development because you just get to have so many conversations about so many different topics and and I yeah and then I and then I loved it when we were when well they were all you know variously shooting through the year on different schedules and the edits would come in and we could sort of feed into it and it was just it was just constantly thrilling because it was just there was always something going on and I loved that aspect of it and I think I was kind of learning to do it as I was going along and the filmmakers were teaching me how to do it you know because they would respond to certain things and you know I'd kind of navigate how to do it and I think I mean developing the shorts is the same as developing anything like I think the best place to be as a development exec is to just to be asking questions you don't really need to come up with any answers and that's the really nice thing about it is you just try and ask questions that bring out what needs to be what the filmmaker's trying to say and just reveal to them where they're not being quite clear yeah I really learned that by doing and I think Dion taught me the most because I learned what Dion responds to Dion Edwards is the filmmaker that I work with the most and um yeah there's a kind of note that she'll respond to and a kind of note that she that she won't <laughs> so so she's really she's definitely really taught me a lot but I think the first lesson of development because I when I got your questions I really reflected on this and there was an episode in my school life that I'd completely forgotten about until you sent me that question which is that when I was in year nine and I was starting to show an interest in filmmaking and scripts and storytelling and all of those things a friend of mine really ambitiously started to write a feature and I think she sent me I don't think it was a whole feature but I think she sent me like I don't know act one or something I can't remember and I remember reading it and thinking okay I know what's wrong with this and it was just really basic stuff I can't tell who the main character is there's no conflict whatever you know all the basics but I couldn't express it to her and I remember in a weekend just being like I know the solution I'll just rewrite it and thinking that 
this would be so great for her you know that I would have just sold I would have just sold all these films for her and I remember taking it back in on the Monday morning being like da-da and you know bringing her these pages and obviously her just being so upset by that and you know crying and storming out and doing all the drama that you do when you're year nine and in a girls school and uh you know what a good lesson that was it's not your job you don't have to solve any problems all you have to do is ask the right questions and the, the writers will solve it themselves and I think that's true in production as well and I've been really lucky, a couple of producers who have a lot more experience than me being executives in a production setting. And the first person I saw doing that was on a movie that I was an assistant on called The Fold. And a woman called Margaret Matheson, who's a you know veteran indie producer, has just done everything. And she came in and sat in a meeting and I remember, I remember making her tea and like desperately wanting to impress her and there being no way of impressing her apart from making good tea so I made good tea and I'll try to and she was just so calm and again like very similar to in development you know we're in production we're really in the thick of it there's scheduled problems location decisions being made all the rest of it and she just sat there didn't try to solve any problems just asked questions and sort of gently revealed where the problems were and let the producers solve them so that the producers had the ownership of it and the confidence and and now I've been lucky enough when I was doing Pretty Red Dress Bennett McGee was that person for me and Bennett never trod on my toes never took anything away from me was always just like especially in my inbox when I'm like trying to solve problems and Bennett would just email me on the side just a just an email just to me leaving every all the other execs all the financiers whoever I'm about to embarrass myself in front of and he would just like send me an email on the side being like maybe this and you know just gently just being the like guardrails in bowling you know just to keep the it's like it won't bowl for you but it will keep you it will keep you on the right track so I try and follow those examples I guess yeah absolutely brilliantly said and I wonder as well if it felt nice to sort of have some distance not that you didn't care about the projects as you know immensely as you did but you know when something like Pretty Red Dress for instance would be your baby and you've you know you really engineered it from the beginning and you're so close to it I imagine that every blow such as you know what happened in the pandemic is is felt bodily whereas with this it's like yeah as you say you kind of you're putting the guardrails up but it's not your fault if you know the ball still goes into the gutter is that how you felt oh absolutely it was it was absolutely delicious I can't explain the the joy of execing or that aspect of execing the way you can like swan in and swan out you know like do a set visit and be like okay I'm I'm going now bye enjoy the rest of your day (laughs) it's like they might go into overtime or they might be you know in the middle of nowhere I think because I have been in the trenches I, I you know I can enjoy the the bliss of of that particular experience definitely and how has uh, the Uncertain Kingdom evolved now? Like, what are you kind of working towards? Is there a kind of a bigger goal that you want to achieve? I obviously know that you've done, like, the Feature Development Fund. So is that still cooking? Definitely. So in 2021, yeah, the, the shorts were out in the world and had been really well received. And we felt, this is John Jenks and Isabel Free and my colleagues on the project, we felt like we had created something to some extent, had some kind of name recognition, you know, people knew who we were. and we'd made this little community of filmmakers who all knew each other and now were in touch and supporting each other. And some of them had gone on to work with each other in different capacities and contexts. And it just felt like, oh, you know, we don't want to sort of let that go. And also because John and Izzy and I had had such a good time working together and, you know, they are such good friends of mine. We didn't want to let it go. But we also knew that we didn't have the, between the three of us, because of different life stages and projects that we had going on, we we weren't going to be able to offer that much, like that that level of involvement again and also sort of separately to that John Jenks has a kind of long time interest in the way that 
in the British industry, there's a really big fall off for directors um, and also to an extent producers between their first feature. And then a lot of them just don't come back and do a second. And in a way, you know, in some cases, I'm sure that's fine. I'm sure there's people who do their first feature and think, no, thanks. And that's, you know, I can relate. But where people do want to do another one, you know, we, we want to be sustaining those careers. And John and have a history of kind of supporting schemes and projects to kind of keep people in the game. And so we felt like, OK, is there a way we can take the Uncertain Kingdom and reimagine it as a development fund that really focused on those second time or third time features, feature filmmakers, and develop their scripts? And we don't have heaps of money, but we've got some. And we've got enough that, you know, we can support a project, maybe just keep the filmmakers in their rent or in their mortgage for a couple of months to focus on that project. And that could be the tipping point, you know, if they can just get not be called away to kind of pocket money jobs and just really focus on this project, maybe that could be the catalyst to getting it made. So that's what we did. And now it is a development fund. We've done three rounds of it. It's sort of bedded in a little bit. We've got a bit of a rhythm going. The projects that we get are really exciting. We're really happy about the filmmakers that we're working with. And now we've had a bit of a think about it, about ways that we can improve it and make it a little bit more useful to people. And the first change that we're making is that we have been running it kind of on a slightly ad hoc, but like roughly twice a year, but slightly on an ad hoc basis. We think that that might be kind of annoying for people and that it might be nicer if they knew when we were going to be open. So we're committing from this November to open for all of November and all of May application so people can know twice a year that's when to expect us and we noticed that we were getting there was a kind of trend in applications and, it, and I think it's having to do with the way that we were asking for applications the what our brief was that we were tending to get projects that were led by issues rather than led by stories and that can make films slightly less compelling so we're slightly broadening our brief so that we we're hoping to make it clear to filmmakers that what we're looking for is compelling films you know films that hold our attention from start to finish more than we're looking for you know a newspaper headline I suppose that's re- like residual from what Uncertain Kingdom became like known as I guess like it felt like a socio-political anthology and now it's like yeah as you say it's just reconfiguring how you're known to people exactly and I mean we you know we definitely still want films to be urgent we still want them to be telling us about what it is to be British and what Britain means but we don't yeah, we don't need them to be a kind of issue film. But that, you know, that's hard to, it's hard to express that. It's hard, you know, so hopefully we'll have opportunities before November to kind of articulate that more to, to filmmakers who might be applying. And yeah, so if anybody listening to this is, is, in, that, is in that bucket and wants to make their second feature, their third feature, um, yeah, please keep an eye on our, on our website, theuncertainkingdom.co.uk and yeah, get in touch with us if you're curious about our brief. Brilliant. It's so exciting as well to have something in the landscape that it sort of doesn't feel results driven. I feel like so many development grants are sort of about what you have to produce at the end of it. And even if you're working towards a script, like just the idea that actually you can use that money, as you say, like towards rent or towards whatever aspect of your livelihood is going to free up your like physical or like mental space to be able to create what you need to create. I think that's you know such an important thing to have. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we're a commercial fund in the sense that we're looking for films that are going to get made, you know, that the market wants and have a chance of us making our money back. But we're not in a hurry. We've got time for this to happen. And we're quite open minded about what we fund. Yeah, you might have an idea on the back of a napkin and you just need a very small amount of money just to work it up to treatment. We're open to that. You might be like, we're basically there with the script. We're looking at, you know, we want to go location scouting to prove this is even doable. That's also fine with us. 
So I, I, I think we try to be quite quite broad and just quite flexible to what the projects need because I think that's the most important, you know, you're trying to make, the, the movies are more important than the fund, if that makes sense. So yeah, we want to be led by by the films that we're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. And and given the amount of time people put into applications, you know, I think uh, that always helps to know that your needs are being met as opposed to you're trying to like tick boxes from whoever's providing the money. I think that's just such a better way of doing it. And we do try to keep our application form really short. I think it is. I mean, the most common question we hear about the Uncertain Kingdom or that I hear from producers is what's the catch? You know, they they read the guidelines, they read the guidelines, they read the guidelines, and then they email me and they say, Georgia, I don't like what's the, you know, this money seems very good value. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you know I always want to just sort of say like no that's it like we're not hiding anything it really is that and I want to segue now to like the other evolution that your career has been through and, and definitely the seeds were kind of being sown because we spoke about your kind of writing directing interests in that first episode but I feel like they have manifested much more in the last few years you know was that something that you reflected on as just being you know you had the desire to do it and you just needed to go out and try it like how did that evolution happen like how did you facilitate that desire I think this is one of those times when my actions were actually slightly ahead of what I was even conscious I was doing because in 2019 so yeah when we were speaking to each other that year I was working up to doing Pretty Red Dress. It was in quite late development by then. There was actually at one point an idea that we would shoot it at the end of 2019, which which didn't happen. And because I was so focused on that, every time something on my slate kind of came to a junction where I had to decide to kind of renew it or not, I was making the decision not to. And I reasoned with myself at the time that was because I wasn't going to be able to keep that going and do the feature as a one person you know outfit I just wasn't going to be able to do justice to those projects but I think reflecting on it I think more was going on which was that I just wasn't able to summon the energy to do that and it was it was about more than my availability of like literally hours it was also about my availability of my passion and my enthusiasm and so then 20 top of 2020 we were in prep for Pretty Red Dress and then the the pandemic happened and, and that the film shut down after three weeks and I was in the pandemic same as everybody else and I yeah I think I more or less went a little bit mad and it was a really horrible time but in a really specific way it kind of freed me up and I think because I was just confronted I'd like everybody who wasn't you know a key worker I had so much time suddenly and was there really confronting like what I really wanted to do. And the only thing I was really interested in doing was trying to get Pretty Red Dress back on its feet, which was, a, which was a struggle, and doing my own writing. And I spent all of that time basically writing, but I wasn't writing stories. I was writing, oh God, it's so embarrassing to think about now. I was writing poetry. And what's worse, what is worse, honestly, Nicole, is I, I sent it to other people. Other people read this horror. <laughs> but something about it, being as broken as I was and ho- as humbled as I was, made it possible for me to do what I hadn't been able to do in my writing before that, which was um, like write about what was like what was horrible about the world or like the ho- the what was horrible in the world as I saw it. And I couldn't, you know, and you have to be able to do that to write because you, you know, there has to be conflict. And before that, I just couldn't do it because I couldn't bear to create a character that I loved and then and then put them through anything difficult and so all of my writing had this kind of mildness to it that just meant that it could just could just never get there and then suddenly I guess because this horrible thing was happening and on a personal level my film had shut down and 
the Uncertain Kingdom project was kind of up in the air and these films that everyone had worked on weren't going to be seen in the cinema and it just nothing was going the way I wanted it to go it just completely I snapped and then when I sort of reshaped suddenly I could I could write that conflict and my writing improved a lot and there was space I don't know I guess like a lot of people it was kind of like life is a bit too short to not be doing the things that are really essential and I remember absolutely years ago hearing somebody say like at some point you'll make your own films because it becomes too painful not to make them and I think that is more or less what happened so yeah so then I did make Pretty Red Dress and then almost immediately after I made Pretty Red Dress an opportunity came up where I, I could put myself forward and say I want to write and write professionally and for the first time I did it and unfortunately it went my way and now that's what I'm doing. I'm wondering why you were drawn to poetry, like why that was the first expression of your writing form and not, for instance, screenwriting, given your closeness to film. Oh, God. No, it's so it's terrible. The, the honest answer is, is heartbreak. I was, having a, I was having a relationship drama. But I think also because, like, I don't want to be a poet. So it was really low stakes. Thank God, you know, it's for the best for everyone. But it was really low stakes, like, because I wasn't trying to be a poet. It didn't matter if I was really bad at it, and I was. And also because it was kind of formless or the nonsense that I was writing was and it had no rules and I didn't know the rules. No, yes, correction, poetry does have rules (laughs) and people who do it well know them and then break them as with all art forms. But I didn't know any of that. So I was just like vomiting onto a page and yeah, and, and it was so low stakes and I could just write and write and write and write and write and get loads of stuff out and I don't know, just kind of break through a lot of the... I think the other thing that it offered me actually was I think a lot of what held my writing back was a real anxiety about being understood. Like I would, I, I wouldn't, people, as I'm very well demonstrating now, don't speak in full sentences. Like they don't speak in nice, tidy, neat clauses with, you know, and they, they just don't. And I couldn't bear to write that because I was worried that then somebody would read the dialogue and not know what the character meant. So all of my characters sounded like, I mean, they just didn't sound like people. And, and so I think, the poetry that meant it was possible for me to kind of risk, you know, because you can be really oblique in poetry and, you know, risk not being understood. And that's to an extent the point of it. So that that opened that up to me. And then suddenly I could write scripts where I was like, well, you may or may not get this. And if you don't, you don't. And so be it. And that was a kind of freedom, too. I think it's a really interesting lesson, this idea that you can like move to other forms and what they can teach you about perhaps the thing that you should be pursuing. You know, this idea that, you know, they need you need conflict or, yeah, you need like dialogue that isn't, you know, a character saying exactly what they mean. Um, obviously, it all informs your writing now, but you discovered it through a completely different medium. I think that's really interesting. I did it with marbling during lockdown. So I think it was exactly the same as that thing that you're like, I have no intention of being an artist or someone that can craft. Therefore, it's incredibly low stakes. You just needed something that you can like express yourself in. You're like, oh, but I don't need to turn this into anything. Yeah, I think that idea had definitely held me back. I was very anxious about it. And I think when we spoke before, I said yeah I, I, I told the story about telling Lauren Dunn the producer that I wanted to write and direct and being so shifty about it and like coming at it all from sort of weird directions that she eventually said it sounds like you're coming out <laughs> because I did feel really embarrassed about it and I did feel like people wouldn't want to know that about me but actually it's been the total opposite every single person that I've said that I'm writing and directing has been like well this is great you know fantastic and people who knew me initially as a producer are now employing me as a writer and have no problems with that and actually embrace 
the fact that I can produce as well as a as a positive thing and something that I can bring to the table and especially in TV actually that's that's kind of useful so so no that was something that I was like holding over my own head and actually wasn't you know wasn't relevant at all that's so good to hear and I'm interested also in the fact that obviously as you know the role intimately what you then look for in a producer like people to collaborate with that you want to produce your own work like are you looking for someone that mirrors how you produced or is there something else that you know when the script is flipped that you're looking for I think I'm always looking for people that I think are going to be better at it than me so so I can hopefully yeah so I can hopefully do like slightly less work and learn as I'm learn as I'm going along with them I mean that's definitely why I wanted to work with Bennett because Bennett does know more than me and you know has done has, has done a lot more films than me but he's also just like much calmer than me and he doesn't doesn't worry the way that I worry and he maintains his sense of humor through everything and I, that I really admire that quality and when I was working with Martha Hood and Aletha upon on a film I directed called Bend, I, I wanted to work with both of them because they, they're so diligent and they're both so smart and their notes were so good, you know, and they made the script better. And yeah, I just, people who are smarter and, and also people who are, have just got that, like that determination just to, just to stay in it no matter what and maintain their sense of humor and dust themselves off after rejections and just go okay fine we'll go around we'll go under we'll go between we'll we'll figure it out you need that spirit so yeah I'm just looking for that I guess yeah totally and how do you describe this is a horrible question I've realized as I'm about to ask it but how do you describe your authorial voice like do you feel you know if you're thinking about the types of stories that you want to produce the you know the types of stories you already have produced does it differ to the stuff that you're interested in going after as a writer or director I guess that's what I'm getting at Oh, this is disgusting. When you sent this to me, I was like, come off it. <laughs> I think it does. But I think I think the first thing is that at the moment, the big takeaway from Pretty Red Dress was that I only want to produce for Dion. So that makes it quite narrow because the producing, I, I really love it. And it's a really great job for me because I really like, as discussed, to be in control. And as a producer, that, you know, that's that's what you're about so I really love it but I think the that then sort of necessarily the things that I produce are different from the things that I want to write and direct because Dion and I have such different backgrounds and different interests no that's not true we have very similar interests but we have such different stories to tell but I think for me I've got no clue what my like voice is I mean yeah makes me feel funny thinking (laughs) so I don't know I'll have to get over that at some point but I would say the things that I'm interested in is I really in the same way that I really just like working I like working with people I also like writing about people working like the things that I'm working on at the moment the short that the next short I'm writing is set in a publishing office and is about the sort of trickiness of of a of a particular dynamic in a in a publishing house and um and my tv show is is a is a workplace drama as well and I just yeah I just love it I just like people working together I like I like your colleagues being your family stuff that's that's my that's my jam yeah yeah I, I don't think I ever have like voiced my love of that as well but if I think of like some of the films that come to mind as being my favorites they're also like broadcast news or even she said yeah exactly it's just so satisfying I just want to, be, want to watch people go to work I don't know it's good and then and also just just writing women I think all the stories that I'm writing there's always a woman in it who's like sort of being like five to ten percent outside of 
normal range of behavior just doing like it's just like slightly too extreme it's like it's not outrageous but it's like is that is she you know that's amazing. I can't wait to see the, the things that you're working on, including a TV show. Um, and I know that you have like other projects in development, but I'd love to get a little bit into like your own writing process and just, you know, where ideas begin. And once you have that initial, for instance, you know, OK, it's a workplace drama set in a publishing house. How do you then approach? Because that still isn't very specific, even though it's, you know, it's narrowed it down to a certain niche. Are you starting with a character that you're like, you know, maybe they're a model for you and you're like inserting yourself into that story and that world? like how do you get into it essentially well with that short that's set in the publishing house it actually started another way which was that essentially a scenario of as discussed a woman doing something that's like a bit beyond what's normal possibly what's okay depending on who you're asking and I had this image of her doing it and I didn't know how like and I, I honestly was thinking about this idea for years and I just didn't know what would happen with this and then eventually hit on the idea that that could be a scene that if that were a scene in a novel that I could then discuss that scene within a novel and all of these people in the publishing house could discuss this woman's behavior if it were a novel and that's what I was interested in I wanted to have a scenario where we could where we could talk about this woman's behavior I wasn't particularly interested in what happened literally next to that woman you know what happened after and then it brought it into that space that I love and I guess just because you know that's my interest that's the way the river runs you know it was so unlikely that it would end up anywhere else than a workplace because I just like it so that was my way into that story and with the tv show that's a workplace drama what happened there was I was having a meal with a colleague, was a sort of work acquaintance friend, and she told me about a TV show that she was developing in-house. She works at a development company. And she sort of pitched me the top line that they'd had this idea and, you know, they were looking for a writer for it. And I, like I did with you in the screening, I just jumped on her and was like, that's my show, I can write that, let me write that. And I think she thought it was a bit strange because, you know, she was hanging out with Georgia her friend the producer but I was like no just give it to me and then I harassed her until she sent it to me and you know it already was a workplace thing which is why I thought it was mine and then in the telling of it I I think it's changed slightly and isn't really the show that she initially pitched to me because now it's sort of through my lens not because I've hated hearing you talk about writing but I do want to get back to producing (laughs) we have to talk about Pretty Red Dress because I just think the part that is astonishing for me is that when we last spoke it was as as we say that it was in development you were kind of gearing up to sort of shoot it and now it's out in the world and you know what a journey it's been on and again have you had enough distance from it that you can reflect on it and you know whether you feel like it's been a success are you proud of the film that you made? I'm so proud of it, Nicole. I'm so proud of it. And like, yeah, it makes me so emotional to think about it because it was such an unbelievable slog because of the pandemic. Yeah, I I, I mean, you know, features are hard. First features are really hard. But then to do to do one during the pandemic, I just really wouldn't recommend it to anyone. And yeah, as I said earlier, like we started it in 2020, we did three weeks of pre-production with a particular cast and a particular crew, then shut down. I spent that summer of 2020 on various news websites trying to predict based on other countries when the UK would be shooting again, la 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 la. Drove myself completely bananas until I eventually was like, I don't have the power to predict this. I'm just going to say we are going to shoot on basically the same schedule next year. So I put it back in for, I think, yeah, almost, yeah, it's like one day out. Same schedule in 2021. We lost our top two cast. We lost lots of our heads of department. 
put it back together again as a totally different film. Now it's unimaginable to me that it would be any different, but I still have a grief for the film that we didn't make because I, you know, spent so much time picturing that one. So that's sad. And then, and then it, you know, making it in 2021 with masks, with distance, you know, I, as I keep saying, I do this for the people. And then those relationships were just formed so strangely by the pandemic. And it was, the shoot was so fucking hard. It was so relentlessly hard. And I got through the shoot more or less on adrenaline. And then when we were in post-production, I completely fell apart, like, like almost physically fell apart. Like I was really, really unwell. I kept having vomiting migraines. Uh, I had a TMI, I had a UTI I could like could not get rid of. I couldn't sleep. I was so stressed. I just, yeah, I was in a, I was in a really bad, I was in a really bad way. And I think it was really, even though it was rubbish going through that, like really rubbish. I am glad of it because I think it was very helpful to me to put into perspective a a lot of the way that I was approaching producing and approaching my life which is that it was it was way too much of my life and there's a way when you're making your first feature like it is so personal and it's such a like goal in the future you know it's just such a hurdle that you just have to get to and it you know as a producer like that first feature it's just like it's Everest you know you just got to fucking do it and you don't know when you're going to do it but you have to do it and it feels like the thing you've got to do to say that you're a producer at all and you know I'm sure it's like that you know I'd love you to have this conversation with Dion because she had a really hard time too, but I'll just, you know, speak to my experience of it. And I kind of came out of it and was so broken. It was just like, I cannot do that again. That was so risky really to my person (laughs) that I just can't do that again. So I needed to like radically reduce producing in my life so that I had more of a life. So the swimming came out of that, like, swimming really looked after me I started volunteering with children children do not give a shit who you are what you do for a living whether or not you've made a feature film it's brilliant I get so much more out of it than they do and yeah started started writing more started directing more and just sort of made producing separate from me like Dion Dion and I have like had to do more or less two years worth of conversation between us to process what happened to us and I'm, the thing I'm proudest of about the film is that me and Dion are stronger than ever. It was really hard on our relationship, but we are so strong and got through it. But the conversation, yeah, it's taken us like two years to process it. And she said to me, when we do this again, which we are doing, so when we do this again, we just have to see the next one as a puzzle. And it's just a puzzle we have to solve. And it helped me so much her saying that because it felt like, oh, yes, a puzzle is like an almost physical thing. You know, it's a Rubik's Cube or it's one of those little things where you have to put the silver ball in the little hole. By you know, As soon as I had that image, I was like, yes, this is brilliant. It's physical. It's separate to me. I just have to move it over there. Like Pretty Red Dress was like in my body. And that's why my body broke. And I like it needs to not be in my body. It needs to be separate from me so that I can put it down. And, you know, that's a day's work. And now I'm doing something else. That was the the really big really big lesson that's probably like much more emotional and kind of touchy-feely than maybe you were asking but I think that's the that's the truth of it I am I and also I'm proud because the film's really good <laughs> like it's just a really good film and I'm so proud of that and also because the film as our editor said and Donna said like films are bad for so long like when you're in the edit they're so bad and you just can't believe how bad they are and how much time you spent making something this bad. And then right at the last minute, you know, like Indiana Jones, like snatching his hat under the door, like right at the last minute, they get good. And it's just a question of how good they can get in that like 
second that he snatches the hat. And pretty red dress got really fucking good. And I'm so proud of that. <laughs> and it's almost those ones that you feel proud of, like the ones that you had to sit with their badness for so long, that then makes you feel so grateful that they did do the flip rather than the ones that were good all along. I really appreciate the honesty. I guess the, the other question there is like how, because, you know, that paints not quite not like a rosy picture but as in like you know that's the ideal you know this idea that you treat the film as a puzzle and you do other things and you let it live outside of you but it's sometimes when producing asks a lot of you and you've got all these people that need an answer by you know the morning and you've got all this weight on your shoulders how do you then maintain those boundaries in the face of what producing inevitably asks of you I don't know yet because I haven't had to do it again since apart from in the development stage of our second film so I am producing now but it's not with the same intensity as when you get into late development and production the only thing that I can say for sure at this stage is that I know that that our second film will be different because one is our second film two fingers crossed it won't be a pandemic three it's in New York so it's going to be you know a totally different experience probably worse (laughs) because New York is notoriously hard to shoot in but because it's in New York and I do not know what I'm doing in the States I'm going to have another producer at least one so I won't be doing all of that on my own so for those reasons it won't be the same the same experience again and I'm hoping that with all of those things being different I can find a, a way for me to be different in it we'll talk again in a few years not recorded and I'll tell you <laughs> I'll tell you whether I manage it but already you're different as well in the sense that, you know, you've, you've already accrued a different sense of resilience than you had before making Pretty Red Dress. As you say, yours and Dion's relationship has been tested and strengthened in a way that it just wouldn't have been prior to Pretty Red Dress. So I feel like you, you'll you be a different producer going into that project as well. For sure. And Dion's a different a different director. She's got that, that puzzle perspective. She'll have done a couple of TV shows. And yeah, and I think we've got a much more honest dialogue. You know, I couldn't hide from her how broken I was which I think as a producer you very often want to do for really good reasons but I couldn't and she couldn't hide from me how tough it was for her and there's an and there's so much strength to come out of that honesty we've got a good shot at doing it in a slightly healthier way next time Amazing. Well, yeah, I definitely would urge everyone to watch it because it comes back to actually what you were saying about the Untitled Kingdom and the idea of like issue-based films being able to almost be a Trojan horse inside of a story. And I feel like actually Pretty Red Dress is exactly that. Like it's so joyful, it's so colourful, it's so vibrant, but packed within it is like one hell of a gut punch about what it means to be a man, what it means to be, you know, inside of a family, what it means to be a person. Like it's a really beautiful film, Georgia. So thank you for your hard work. I have a few general questions. I'm putting off turning that mic back on me for as long as I possibly can. But I, in listening back to the previous um, interview, I was I was just quite interested about some of the things that you were saying there. And I think one of the things that struck me was about how you sort of, I guess, I don't think you used the word imposter syndrome, but you we were speaking about like cinephilia and, and filmmaking education. And you sort of felt like you had you didn't have that knowledge necessarily when you first came into it. And I wonder if you feel like that has changed and whether your relationship to cinema or filmmaking in general has kind of evolved where maybe now you do feel a bit more confident in in your taste and your knowledge yes I think it has changed I mean I still don't feel like I've caught up whatever that means and like I ever will I think having that conversation with you was actually really helpful to sort of confront that and just go okay this is a thing that bothers you so what are you going to do about it and I do go through patches 
where I really commit to watching loads of films and you know I can't sustain it all the time no phase of any life is sustainable all the time you know there's always these little seasons but I have little seasons where I watch masses of films and films that I know I might not like or will challenge me or whatever to kind of yeah to try and expand my knowledge and my visual vocabulary and all of those things but I think I also made peace with the fact that the reason I still haven't seen a lot of the canon is because a lot of the canon I don't want to watch because it's boys beating each other up and I don't care and I just can't get excited about it and I'm sure those films are really important and you know I'm sure they'd have things to teach me but I just don't want to and I think making peace with the things that you just don't want to do as a part of growing up and I don't know I'm trying to I'm trying to grow up yeah absolutely and I think it is you know part of a larger conversation that we're having in the industry about sort of dismantling the canon and, and reconfiguring it figuring out like who it was even for before and you know I think obviously that sight and sound list that came out was you know like you know just one film shifting to the top sort of kick-started a bigger conversation about the types of films that we value and the types of the stories that we value so I think yeah it's much better to approach it as okay what do I like want to spend my time with moving forward as opposed to this idea of like catching up as you know we're always constantly going to be on the back foot I think if you look at it like that and obviously you know you mentioned in this interview that relationships and the people that you get to work with kind of being like the biggest source of motivation you know is that still the case and also you know is there a certain like type of like person or like relationship that you look for like quite active and purposeful about the types of people that you want to work with like do you have a list for instance or is it just you know like encountering people and being like oh we're vibing I feel like you'd be someone that I'd enjoy working with it's sort of both. I do I do keep a list of people where I've sort of seen, you know, something of them or, you know, whatever and thought, oh, yes, I'd like I'd like to talk to them. But it is also I'm reading a really great book at the moment called 4000 Weeks, which I really recommend, which is about your experience of time and how you inverted commas spend your time. And one of the things that comes up again and again is kind of like playing the thing that's in front of you, you know, just dealing with what's in front of you. And I think a part of it is instead of like striving to find, you know, to reach people that you're not in any, not in the field with, just who who is in your life now? Like, and what can those relationships give you and, and how can they enrich you? And I think the thing that I'm, what I look for in people that I want to work with is the feeling that I'm going to be changed by them. I'm not particularly interested in spending loads of time with people that I already know I'm really similar to or really agree with or that feeling of like oh you know because I know you I'm I'll be different in a little while I think that's really exciting that's definitely true of Dion even though that you know the longer we know each other I think the more we realize there are like deep deep things that we have in common that maybe were the thing that made us compatible to begin with but we just didn't know that about each other but we're so different and every conversation we have I learn something from her and that's for me, why the relationship is continues is because I'm still so curious about her. And so I'm, yeah, when I'm working with other people, I just want to work with people that I feel that way about. Yeah, I feel I feel that way about Martha Hood, for example, who's a who's a producer and development executive and is just so fucking smart. So yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Well, now is the time where I would normally say thank you for coming on and I would would release you, but um I guess I'll enjoy what I've just put you through. <laughs> Yes, so I, when I saw you, I said I wanted to ask you these questions because I do think that what you have done is extraordinary and I do think that it needs to be acknowledged because you have put in so much effort over many years now as a one-woman band to illuminate for us how film careers are made, particularly by women. And I, 
I don't think there's a comparable project. I think you've made this unique time capsule network map, kind of historical record of a time and a, and a group of women who are making films at, at this time. And of course, it's not exhaustive, but it's freaking big. And I think that's amazing. And I really wanted to, yeah, to make sure that somebody said that on record in relationship to the podcast and made you hear it. So well done. Thank you. That's incredibly generous. And I knew that I would yeah struggle to hear it because I can't take compliments but no I really really appreciate it it will sink in once I've had a chance like not to blush quite so heavily yeah and please don't cut that out because <laughs> you've got the control but please don't please don't cut it out so let's reflect on it let's take some time to reflect on it when you go back now and listen to those early episodes and listen to yourself now how do you feel about how you progress as an interviewer can you tell the difference do you feel differently about it well crucially I don't I had to for in preparation for this but I certainly haven't listened to the first 100 episodes since they've gone out there I would say yes just because the more you do something the more you're always likely to improve at it and obviously I think early on I think I was you know a bit nervous and I would maybe speak sometimes a bit too soon as I think as an interviewer you have to learn to get comfortable with discomfort or pauses or you know you're asking people to reflect and you can't always hope that they have something ready to say there and then so I think sometimes it's just you know sitting with a question that you put out there and like waiting for them to formulate their thoughts as opposed to thinking that's reflective of your own inability to like have a conversation with them so I think I'm definitely trying to get better still trying to get better at holding that space for the person you've invited on to talk to as opposed to it being more about your questions or even even when you're talking about pretty red dress like kind of letting go of what I thought that conversation should be you know that earlier version of it that I was hoping to have when I was writing the questions and just having the one that they're ready to have on the day and it doesn't always mean it's going to be a good conversation like there have been ones that I came out of it being like that didn't really go the way that I wanted it to but I think that's part of being an interviewer is is like wrestling with that and and thinking okay well like what's what's the next best question that I can ask that is actually like gonna get into like the belly of what it is we're talking about here as opposed to just moving it on because that's where you wanted it to go next so I definitely think I've just like gotten better at the art of it or like even the ethics of it I think I wouldn't have thought about that earlier on in the interviews it was just just oh I've got 18 questions and I'm gonna ask them in order and now it's actually much more about you know like what is the purpose of this conversation and I have to say a really big uh, you know massive credit to Gemma Desai who for me was a really big turning point in you know this whole process because she sort of you know as she does with all of her kind of academic work she kind of deconstructed the interview when we, we we had it twice because the first one we had she was like actually that's it wasn't good I said things that I didn't want to say and so we had to do it again and it sort of became less about a conversation about progress and and career progress and this idea of linearity and and just much more about you know how how rubbish the industry can sometimes be and how it can let people fall out of it who are brilliant at their jobs but because it doesn't you know forefront care um and I think that definitely forced me to kind of reflect on how I'd been conducting the interviews um and the questions that I'd been asking which are geared towards like what's next and and how did you achieve this and 
I sometimes still ask those questions because I think they beget interesting answers but just trying to place less focus on on like this idea of like a peak or that you're like building up to the best version of you and just kind of thinking about it much more in the round I think that's a very waffly answer no not at all I think that's really fascinating and I think leading on from that let's talk about your observations of these women's careers because I think as I said when I was trying to praise you you've got this really unique vantage point of so many so many women's careers and are there any kind of overall um, reflections that you have on it common themes or you know recurring problems or any like is that you know ringing any ringing any bells for you? Yes and no like I think it's a hard point of comparison because I obviously haven't done the same level of like study of men's careers um, and so it is kind of in silo. I think women are so much more humble and and I just did it then where I where I, I spoke for a long time and then I was like oh that's really waffly um, and I've just caught myself doing it and women on the interviews have like done that time and time again where they cut themselves short or they say like oh I don't know if that's an interesting answer and it's so funny how we just don't let ourselves have the space to like talk about ourselves for a very long time so it's less I guess about the careers themselves other than you know everyone seems to have worked very fucking hard to get to where they are and had to have made sacrifices and um you know is 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 doing really amazing work but still feels like they can't fully talk about it sometimes without um being a bit like not defensive but yeah just very humble about it and I'm always saying like I wouldn't I wouldn't have asked you on if I didn't have a genuine curiosity in what you do so like don't worry about trying to make it the most exciting answer I'm I'm genuinely just you know interested in what you have to say but yeah certainly women because for so long we haven't been valued for what we have to say for ourselves um so I think that's still very embedded in the way we do kind of talk about our work particularly yeah for sure and I mean you know it's there in me insisting that you don't cut out my praise because I know that that's going to be tempting you know it's going to be embarrassing for you to to include that so you have been doing this as a as a one woman band and there are some commonalities there with you know with producing um features or shorts or whatever um and so I wanted to ask you like where do you draw your energy from where do you keep the stamina and the drive to keep on going when you you know when you're doing it on your own when I first started it was out of this idea that like to make a podcast a success like it had to be consistent and you know you kind of had to build an audience and and as soon as I committed to it being like a weekly interview it was like right well I can't disappoint people like I have to put out an episode a week and I'm a massive people pleaser I also get a lot of motivation from just the idea of like looking productive like I'm very image conscious in that way so I think definitely like the first season I think it was like 30 episodes long um, and it was just stemming from like okay well I've said I've I'm doing it so now I guess I have to do it and I got burnt out like massively and I took like I think a two-month break um, and, and quickly learned that that is what I had to do to kind of keep it going was to kind of do shorter seasons curate the guests a bit more and not just see it as like an ongoing constant thing um, and then yeah come back to it two or three months later when I kind of missed it and and you know was like oh no I did enjoy doing that and you know I, I did it for the conversations and 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 as with you drawing up a list like thinking about who are the people that 
I was going to be inspired by and where was I at in my career and who are the people that maybe it would be interesting to talk to. So that's certainly where I like derived a lot of my energy. Um, I have to say like the last year, like when I decided last year to end it, it's taken a lot to get the energy actually to do this final season just because my career has gone in different places. I'm doing other things now. Um, and yeah, that was actually really hard to be honest with you because I want, I really wanted to, I didn't want to let it go out with a whimper and, and just on a spontaneous decision because uh, to be yeah, totally transparent in the last um, season, a, a few guests at the end dropped out. So I had a few more episodes planned and it just wasn't working out. I was a bit too stressed and I just decided, okay, well, I'll take a pause and actually, you know, that built into a bigger reflection about why I was doing it anymore. But I knew that I wanted to create that ending for myself as opposed to let it happen to me but yeah it's definitely been hard to kind of work up I'm still like in the midst of it obviously I've still got all these episodes to edit but yeah it's 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 draining but I always come back to the conversations themselves are the most energizing thing that I'll have like they honestly like I always walk away from them like feeling like I can do something or I've learned something or I've just spent an hour with someone that I wouldn't ever like in what world like in what like networking event would you ever have like a one-on-one that kind of intense and gratifying like you just wouldn't and like that for me has always been the thing that I've come back to it for yeah that doesn't surprise me at all that that energizes you because I think that conversation with you was so valuable to me at that stage of my career being asked gave me so much confidence and yeah you know as you said at the beginning you send those questions and I've now done it to you you have to reflect you have to you know think about about your career and I think that reflection time is is really valuable and that's why you know I was so keen to to do it again because I get entirely selfish I get so much out of it which leads me to I guess asking you know what did you think you were going to get out of it when you started and is that what you got has anything about it surprised you yeah that was an odd question because I was like I don't I don't know like I I think I went into it a bit gung-ho honestly again to be transparent I was going through a breakup I needed a project I needed something to distract me and I thought this is something that maybe I could do I'm in the BFI I'm already seeing lots of women in front of me and I just sort of went and did it without really thinking if it was gonna have legs or what I wasn't being strategic about it, honestly. Like I wasn't thinking of it as, you know, this is going to help me in my career in this, this and this ways. And that has been the most surprising thing about it, honestly. The fact that certain projects I'm working on at the moment have come about through connections with guests. Um, The fact I'm working with Sarah Brocklehurst on a podcast at the moment. And, you know, she was a a guest in like the first 70 or so episodes. And again, like like with you, we kind of maintained intimate and, you know, connection and uh, built something out of it, which is something I'm really, really proud of and wouldn't have known to expect at the beginning of this journey I think also that is indicative of just like the podcast industry as well and how that has grown like it was something I started very much as like a hobby as an amateur and didn't really reflect on it as something that like oh I'm building a skill set here and yet you know have and I think the the way that you know certainly just like the media industry in general is taking podcasting much more seriously at least it feels that way it sort of helped me take my abilities in it more seriously as well but yeah I certainly couldn't have predicted that or expected it when you talk about it as a hobby can we talk a little bit about doing things for free because I think you and I have both done that done a lot of work for free I'm I still do it and I'm curious about what you you know how you square that for yourself and what role you think working for free 
has in the has in the industry yeah it's been a source of conflict honestly because I can I'll be very honest about the fact that I've never paid money for a single guest and like and also to be very honest like people no one has ever asked for a fee so I think there is something there is a tacit understanding about what best girl grip is and you know if anyone ever were to ask I could say like you know it's a bedroom operation like I'm speaking to you now from my bedroom I've got a blue yeti microphone that's plugged into my laptop I do all the editing on audacity which is a free software so like I've deliberately always kept costs low in the first season I was very aware that the sound wasn't great and that I it felt like something that I was doing for free and that there was no money in and I wrestled with that a lot and thought about getting sponsorship and thought about whether I could like scale up but I like as with producing I wanted control over the entire thing and in a way like I wanted it to not be a money-making operation like so much of what I do I've kind of monetized and I, I sometimes find that difficult the idea that you have to like make worth out of your creativity and I thought actually here's a fun opportunity to have something that I can just do without it having to pay my bills and that always felt to me like it outweighed the whatever was like disadvantaging me about like doing all of this work for no money I sort of enjoyed having something that was like outside of this capitalist rubric of I have to turn this into something that is like making a living um and again like credit to all the guests who have like been very like willing to do that with me and for me and giving up their own time to kind of have a conversation for free but yeah I don't I don't make any money from it but actually I'm I'm totally fine with that when I asked you that question then you responded by talking about fees for guests it hadn't crossed my mind like I I, like I was so surprised by that being what you said because it just hadn't crossed my mind that that guests would ask for a fee and I guess it didn't it didn't cross the minds of anybody that you invited but I agree with what you say I think there's something so powerful about making the decision that you want to do something for free I think it's so liberating to say I'm just taking money off the table and this is going to be this is going to be in this protected space where money isn't going to be the the lever on which this this operates yeah and I should say it's a privilege you know it's a privilege that I can do a full-time job that has like afforded me to also do this that I'm not having to also work you know weekend hours or evening hours etc it comes part and parcel with the fact that I'm able to make a living you know not only doing something that I love but that pays a living enough that I can afford to do this for free um so that's not lost on me but yeah it certainly as you say has felt very freeing in that way yeah, but then let's also reflect on the fact that you're you are using the privilege of having your evening and weekends free to do a creative project, to do a creative project that you've shared with thousands of people. I mean, that's such a generous act. You could very well have been doing your marbling on your own, and <laughs> and instead you've done this this project which which benefits us. And even though you know you're now you know closing it, it's going to. I'm assuming you're going to leave the archive there. It remains it's going to remain there. I've recommended it to so many people. It's become my go-to because I, you know, I'm lucky enough. I get quite a few emails now of people saying, oh, how do I get started? Or could you, you know, give me any advice or whatever? And I send them straight to your podcast. Like, these are all the jobs. (laughs) This is how you get them. (laughs) You know, it, you know, it's it's such a, it's such a gift that you've, um, that you've offered to people so I yeah I really I really really commend, commend that again it's like it's lack of foresight though like it when I started it I kind of didn't 
have that grand ambition of like, oh, I'm doing this big, generous gesture for the industry. Like it was a selfish gesture in many ways that turned into, you know, maybe a more generous one than I'd intended it for. Um, And that's always honestly like still quite surprising. I get emails as well, like people asking me how to get into the industry and and, and people also having listened to it and said that, yeah, oh, actually a really lovely thing was the interview will be going out in the next season. But a guest who now has a job at the BFI and listened to an episode with her now boss to prepare for the interview and then got the job. And I was like, my heart just like soared. It was such a beautiful thing to hear. And I thought, oh, wow, that's just that's yeah, that's made it for me. That's made my day. That's so wonderful. That is a really lovely thing. Is there anything that anybody has said that you've incorporated into your life, like lesson, you know, lessons, little nuggets of wisdom that you've kind of taken in and and used. I mean, all the time, probably, like you can't help but imbibe the the values or even like the way people are in the world. Like even if it's just for like the next week after you've interviewed that person. <laughs> I definitely think just like the relationships thing actually coming back to like what you've said and like really trying to focus on you know working with people that give you good energy um, and it's not always easy like sometimes you are thrust into situations that you can't control and that you are forced to like devote energy and time to people that just like aren't on your level or aren't giving you what you need but just trying to like not take that personally I think that's something that like comes up a lot is just this idea of you're you can only control the vibes that you put out into the world and also like doing it with niceness and like politeness and civility not that you have to make everyone that you work with your friends but also I can't remember who said it so it's terrible I'm like attributing a quote to someone that I can't name but I think it was this idea of you can bring feelings and sensitivity to the workplace particularly in a creative job Um, and I think that's something that I was sometimes like ashamed of the idea that I would feel disappointment at work you know if something didn't go my way or like someone didn't praise me for a piece of work or you know the numbers maybe on this like weren't quite as good as I thought they would be I would always feel that in the body and I've like stopped kind of shaming myself about that and just being like well it's because I care and I fucking love what I do and I want it to do well so that's that's fine and the alternative is to be a machine and it you know which is the nightmare like yeah well I've noticed that in the time since we had our first conversation you have been getting closer and closer to the action (laughs) you're working on other podcasts you're now an executive yourself of short films talk about that that trajectory what that feels like to you to be getting your hands dirty and yeah how how deep are you going to go I think really what I'm saying is are you actually a writer director and producer that's what I'm saying this is as close as I'll, as I'll ever get a Georgia honestly when you're talking about how nice it feels to be an exec and like swanning into a set and then like leaving them to do the clear up yeah I love that feeling for sure now I'm someone that um like very much likes structure and also like having having like the job and the career but then you know having the life outside of that and I think obviously you know we've been talking a lot about how you make that possible for yourself when you are producing but it does look like a job that it's so hard to do that that I just feel like I would lose myself to it honestly I would lose my boundaries so for me producing is not the one um I rate you know all the producers that I work with and I love supporting them and doing what they do but yeah for me that's that's as close as I'll get to the action I am trying to call myself a writer but not of films that is something that I definitely had a desire to do when I was like 19 or 20 and I got a, a couple of bad scripts out of my system but I have no desire to return to it <laughs> For me, I just think I'm better at expressing myself through prose. Like that is the art form that 
I feel like I actually know, like despite having watched lots of films and despite, you know, now working very closely in like a script editor capacity with filmmakers, I, I still feel like, you know, novels and, and short stories are the form that I am still curious about more and that I get more out of as a reader and therefore want to kind of interrogate as a writer. And again, it's like this idea of compartmentalizing and like having something that I can like do on a weekend or an evening that exists outside of film and that it's not part of the same ecosystem. So yeah, I'm definitely kind of glad to have that separation. But yeah, honestly, it's a dream come true to kind of have have made that transgression from kind of looking in and and now kind of yeah being somewhat on the inside of it and and getting to work with some of the people that you know I had on as guests and was admirers of and yeah as I say like with Sarah Brocklehurst or you know Katie Sinclair produced a film that I was an exec on recently like that's that's really exciting for me to to as you say like to get to work with these minds the people that you kind of consider to be smarter and wiser and more brilliant than you and you just get to kind of watch them do that and maybe add a add a comment every now and then. Let me ask you then, how how are you learning to exec? What are you finding works? What doesn't work? So obviously I'm, I'm at the BFI Network so um, for the Southeast. So we get to, you know, grant filmmakers funding through that. Um, and when I did it last year, I got the job at the point that the application window was open. So was literally thrown into kind of reading applications. And in, in, in many respects, that part of it was absolutely fine. I kind of trust my taste. I sort of know what I think a good story is and how I can kind of help tighten that and, you know, make it sing. Um, it's the production side of things that was definitely the biggest learning curve I've ever been on, even just in terms of like legals and understanding like contracts and and people asking you questions about like okay what does this term in this contract actually mean or implicate for me or you know people sending you like music agreements and being like okay I want it in perpetuity and blah 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 and like all these terms that you're just like okay I like kind of understand what it means but I don't really know what it means specifically for this project so I, you just have to get really really good at not knowing stuff actually and just asking questions like we have a really lovely whatsapp group for all the execs um, around like the BFI and you know I, I used to hold back from asking questions on there for fear of looking stupid and now I'm just like sorry what does this mean and can someone point me where the answer is and also like not having that pride with your producers and your filmmaking team as well and like they'll come to you for answers and you know I've got really good at being like I actually don't know the answer to that but leave it with me and I'll find out or I think actually it was probably someone on this this podcast that probably gave me that trick or or yeah just saying like yeah I don't I don't know um but let's like find out together or let's find a solution together so yeah that is a big part of what I do now but yeah definitely like lots of lots of fuck-ups just always learning but always you know it's coming from a good place so hopefully no one can hold it against you well that feels like a good place to maybe move on to our piece of conversation about ambition Mm, yes oh my gosh exciting I'd love to know how you like define it and like I guess like ambition is just like what you want but like how you measure even like success and like have like have the things that like make you happy and make you feel successful like changed since we last spoke I think so I remember you really kindly in your introduction to that conversation talking about how hard I worked and I don't work that hard anymore and I think that has been really important to me because I think 
you said earlier in our conversation that you sort of like you like to like look productive and look busy and I really relate to that feeling and I have to really I have to really fight that and it's been a big journey and I'd say the last year to just be like who are you performing to right now who do you think is watching you glued to your desk 10 hours a day like who who cares who cares yeah, I think now I'm trying not to measure my own success by the number of hours that I spend at my laptop showing up for work and try to measure it by whether I feel like I've expressed myself in some way. Have I been like truthful to yeah, what I'm trying to what I'm trying to say in the world, what I'm trying to do being the most truthful me in the world and that that, that being a success. And that might mean that the only thing that got done that day was like me having a really authentic conversation with a friend where we were really honest and I made the time to make that happen even though it was the middle of the afternoon on a Wednesday that feels really good to me now and I used to not do that because I'd be like no I'm I'm very busy and important and I'm producing right now and I yeah I just I don't want I don't want to do that anymore so I think that's my that's the big movement for me is like not showing not, not proving that I'm working in the same way I guess yeah no I totally relate to that although I, I love nothing more than getting on a phone and being like I'm so stressed <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder like as well because I'm I'm no longer that like plan oriented I'm like I just kind of I think the pandemic kind of took that away from me a little bit as you say like you can't control and I wonder if that's the same for you yeah if it's just more about like living the day-to-day writing the stories that are in you at the moment and kind of just like going along with them for the ride but not really like being too attached to the outcome a little bit I think I don't think I've ever been that ambitious in the sense of like having a vision of an end goal I don't think I've ever really because the only thing I ever really wanted to be doing was making films having those relationships having those conversations and you know at the same time hopefully paying rent and I've been doing that now I've been really lucky and I've been doing that more or less since since 2015 as a freelancer and if I can keep doing that I'll be I'll be delighted. I think the big revelation for me in the making of, I guess, High Miss, which was our short before Moses, then making We Love Moses, then making Pretty Red Dress, is the, the experience of finishing and releasing each of them and, how, you know, going to festivals and stuff basically felt the same. Pretty Red Dress is a longer time coming, you know, it's, you know, there's more stamina involved. But like the experience of sitting in a cinema, watching a movie with an audience, people enjoying it, coming and talking to you afterwards, saying they related to it, da 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 da, da that basically feels the same which is very eye-opening because I think before truly reflecting on that I had operated on the idea that like I would get more feeling out of each film I would get like a big because the film would be bigger and the reception would be bigger and the awards would be bigger and the audiences would be bigger and my feeling would be bigger and actually it's not my feeling is basically the same and so now my ambition is not to like, or I guess the thing that's driving me is not to kind of collect bigger experiences, but actually to kind of vary the experiences I'm having and kind of go deeper in them. So that like what what I'm interested in in the film is like getting deeper into the process of making it and like making that the the focus rather than the the end goal which is one of those things you know the way you can say the theory and you can give this wisdom to friends any number of times but you have to live it like I'm reasonably sure that I said more or less the same thing the last thing first time we spoke like I feel quite confident that I probably did but I had no idea what I was talking about that was theory I've lived it now 
Yeah, I think that's healthier as well. Like, I don't think like we should put all our eggs in the success basket being like, oh, this is going to change everything for me. And this is going to like suddenly tip over into like, oh, I'm now a happier and better person because this thing's a success because like so likely it isn't the case. And then you would have like staked your whole livelihood on something that hasn't turned out the way you wanted it to. So I think it always has to be about the journey and the making of it itself and like the enjoying the thing itself so that you're not like short shrifted when you get to the end and you're like oh like shit it actually didn't turn out the way I thought it was going to when you talk about you know being sort of planning less I guess especially in the context of pandemic and having no control and all of that without a plan how are you how do you be excited about your life how do you do you know I do you know what I'm asking here like if you're not like reaching for something how do you draw your your excitement and your curiosity and your kind of like what what do you what's taking you forward I guess yeah it's a really interesting question and like I think the way when I say like I'm less planning oriented it's like not on a day-to-day like on a day-to-day like very less driven like have certain things that I know I need to do um but I have also faith that those smaller things will lead somewhere else. And I've stopped worrying about where it's going to lead or like what the bigger picture is. So when people say to me like, oh, like what would you want to be doing in like five years time? I genuinely don't know, but like I'm very happy to know that I guess my intuition will get me there. And that if I keep saying yes to the things that I'm curious about, I will eventually, because I've ended up here and here's not such a bad place and I didn't really plan for this. So I kind of just keep backing myself to like figure it out as I go. And genuinely it's like, it's the day-to-day stuff that keeps you excited. Like the fact that like this year, like getting to do like the Never Told podcast and like getting to like produce like eight stories that are really great and came out of nowhere, you know, like we asked for them and then the writers wrote them and then we produced them. And like, that was incredibly exciting for me. Um, the films that I've, you know, made with the BFI network, that is all stuff that I'm so excited to like keep doing. So it's, it's yeah, again, it's like thinking about, okay, what, what have I done this year that I'm proud of? How can I continue to like sustain that? I definitely, ask myself those bigger questions but it's not like okay I I need to get this job in order to to do this and you know make myself feel happier and earn more money etc it's just sort of bobbing along happily until I'm no longer happy and then figuring out why not and where I can go next I guess that's such a great way of summing up an approach to a career I really really love that I think that's such a, a such a great place to end the conversation because it's such a such a great takeaway maybe for maybe for the listeners to hear from you about about a career how to plan a career so yeah I think you might be right Georgia thank you so much for today thank you for the first interview you gave and thank you you know even more for this one now um yeah I really really appreciate it right back at you thank you very much this has been a real pleasure